Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. So we need to be prepared for what God is doing in our midst. The book of Ephesians is a great book to think about in regards to this because it focuses on how the body of Messiah ought to work in unity. But before Paul focuses on that, he deals with certain foundational, doctrinal, theological issues that we need to have under our belts. If you look at verses 1 to 14, he has told us of the great blessings the Lord has bestowed upon us. This is one big sentence. There are no commas here in the Greek. There are no colons or semicolons. There are no periods here. It is just one long sentence because as Paul begins to reflect on all of the things that God has given us, he just wants to keep talking and talking and talking and talking and doesn't want to stop. And so these first 14 verses is sort of like the energy of Paul, the soul of Paul being poured out with respect to what God has done for us. And he tells us that he's done these things. He's given us every spiritual blessing in Messiah. Blessings that involve the fact, in verse 4, we have been chosen by him. He has separated us out from the world and said, this one is mine. He has said that about me, but he has said that about you as well, if you know Yeshua as Messiah and Lord. For he chose us in him. But he didn't only choose us. Look at verse 5. He made us his children. He adopted us into his family. He gave us his own surname. We are the children of the living God. Not just in the sense that we have been created by him and for him and in his image, but we are made to be his own children. And thus we do not only refer to him as our God, but we say, Abba, Father. And when Yeshua tells us to pray and instructs us to pray, He says, pray our heavenly Father who is in heaven. Yeshua could have said, when you pray, pray to my Father who is in heaven. And none of us would argue with that. But Yeshua doesn't say that. He says, pray to our Father, mine and yours. For he has adopted us into his family. Not only that. 
But he tells us in verse 7, he has removed all guilt from us. He has told us, you are forgiven. He has redeemed us. And therefore, we stand innocent before God. I know you understand that sense of forgiveness because if you've experienced it in one way or another, you know how delightful it is. I can tell you countless number of students who had come to me and had apologized for either cheating on one of my tests, for which they still got an F no matter how much they apologized. I said, in God's book, you got an A, but in my book, you still have an F. But nevertheless, when they've come and they've apologized, and I've been able to say, hey, listen, you don't need to think about this anymore. In my class, we would continue to interact with each other with the freedom that a teacher and a student need to have if there is to be genuine learning. Forgiveness is essential for human beings to live alongside of each other, let alone for human beings to live in the very presence of the living God. And God has forgiven you in Messiah. When Yeshua is on the cross, the Lord says, forgive them for they know not what they do. In Messiah, we have every spiritual blessing. He's chosen us. He's made us his children. He's forgiven us, and there's no guilt. He tells us he's informed us of God's intentions in these verses. He's made known to us his plans and purposes. He has not kept us in the dark, but he has given us the privilege of being in on what he is up to. And you and I not only know what he's up to, but we are part of what he is doing. We are instruments in his hands to see that his plans and purposes would come to fruition. And lastly, he tells us, if that is not enough, he's given us his spirit that we would have the sense of assurance of his love for us, a sense of permanence bonded to him forever and ever. And thus the Spirit of God dwells within us as well as among us. And now with that in mind, Paul prays, verse 15, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Yeshua and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, 
but in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the congregation of believers, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Is that not just a glorious statement of prayer? It's almost like if I say anything, it like destroys it. The prayer itself is enough to grip our hearts. But let me take a a shot at reflecting on some of the points that are here. First of all, I want you to know that his prayer, verse 17, is that we might know him better. That is God's ultimate concern, that we might know him. My dear friend, Dr. Marv Wilson, this year celebrated his 50th year of teaching at Gordon College. Think of that. 50 years in teaching in one institution. Imagine all the people all over the world that he's invested his life in who are making a difference for the kingdom of God. 50 years in the same place. 50 years with essentially the same message, although he has probed it, explored it more and more. While he was being honored for his tenure of service, and he's continuing to teach. In fact, I wrote him not long ago, maybe about eight months ago now, because I've been asked to speak at the Lausanne Conference on Jewish Evangelism next year on the use of the New Testament, the use of the, New, of the Old Testament by the New Testament writers. And I thought, what do I say about that? So I wrote Dr. Wilson. And I said, Dr. Wilson, I have to write on this. Any ideas? And he sent me this long bibliography. I've got a few. And here they all were. And I wrote him back. I said, can you explain anything that is good in here that I'm going to be reading about? But 50 years he's been teaching. They celebrated that. And he got up and he began his message or his thank you by saying, life is for learning. And learning is for a lifetime. Life is for learning, and learning is for a lifetime. Dr. Wilson is one of the most articulate scholars on the face of this earth. He's written thousands of articles for some of the most important reference material that all pastors and missionaries and researchers use to this day. And if he could say, life is for learning and learning is for a lifetime, you and I have a long way to go before we will know much of anything. Our knowledge of God or the knowledge of God is inexhaustible. We will never stop learning about the living God. And all of our life, here and forever, we will continue to learn of him 
and of his marvelous grace. Fortunately for you and I who know Messiah, we've begun the lessons already. So when we graduate, we'll graduate a little sooner than the others who haven't started yet. At least hopefully so. But we will learn about him forever. And I'm moved by what what Paul writes. His prayer is that we would receive wisdom and revelation so that we might know him better. And what Paul is concerned about is not that we know about God. Not that we understand theological truths and doctrinal realities for the sake of knowing them. The word Paul uses here is experiential knowledge. That what hits us in the mind and then stirs the heart would motivate the will. That's what Paul is concerned about. We can all recite To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if it doesn't grip the heart, it will not grip the will. And if we do love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we must, by necessity, love our neighbor as ourselves. You cannot have one without the other. In fact, Paul says that here. Look at verse 15. He says, ever since I heard about your faith, In the Lord Yeshua, your love for the Messiah, and your love for all the saints. Now, between me and you, it's a lot easier to love the saints that are sane, to love the saints that are stable, to love the saints that have it, as we might say, all together. But what Paul saw about the Ephesians... They loved all the saints without exception or without and with respect to whatever might be their peculiarities. If we truly are ones who name the name of the Lord Yeshua, we must love others. Over and over again, Messiah tells us, you will know my disciples by their love for one another. Not by their depth of faith, although all of us ought to pursue that. Not by our knowledge of the word. Not by our ability to put all of the pieces together so that the word of God might make sense, although those are good tools and abilities to have. But he tells us by our love, one for another. If we're to move forward as a body to where God is leading, we must first be about learning of him. And learning of him must reach down into the soul that then motivates the will. In which we are ones who do not only know about God, but we experience him and we demonstrate him to others. I read this article that was uh, in a, a, a publication put out by Gordon Conwell. And this is rather interesting. This fellow is writing this article, and he starts by saying, in recent years, Christianity has been the object of considerable ridicule. The new atheists, Dawkins, Harris, the late Christopher Hidgens, have made a nice living by declaring that religion in general, and Christianity in particular, poisons everything. So the writer then goes on to say he was rather surprised when he read what I'm going to read to you. 
a paragraph by Matthew Paris, who is a columnist for the Sunday Times of London and an avowed atheist. And in an article that he wrote entitled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God, he wrote these words. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. This is an atheist. It changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. An atheist has to read that, write that. Where are the believers writing that? But let's put that aside. Where are the believers around the world? Forget about Africa. That are making the same profound difference in the communities in which they find themselves as well. If we are going to transform our community like these individuals in Africa. If we're going to make a difference in the lives of others. It will not be because of our training, our skills, our education, our intellect, or our ability to sort of understand the world around us. It will only come by the power of God manifested in and through the life of an individual. What Paul is praying for is that his hearers, his readers at Ephesus and the surrounding communities would not be content with religiosity, would not be content with just knowing things about God, but rather would desire the changed heart about which Matthew Paris writes. Because with a changed heart, we can then begin to see God change the hearts and lives around us as well. It starts by Paul's prayer for the people of Ephesus and for the believers there to desire God more and more. The God who he says, and we can't spend any more time here, but this God whom he said has called us, in verse 18, who has enriched us, verse 17, 18, and in verse 19, who has extended to us incomparable great power for us. If we're going to make a difference, if we're going to make a change in the world around us, it will be because of the power of God unleashed first in our own hearts and souls, and then in the hearts and souls 
around us. The question is, will we allow him to do that? Will we allow Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and now for us to do that? The Ephesians, remember, in just about 30 years, John is going to write to them as recorded in the book of Revelation. And he's going to write, you have lost your first love. And he tells them, repent of that. These very same people who he's telling has all of these great riches. These very same people for whom he has labored three years at one point, a number of months on another point, another time of his ministry. A man who has labored intensely and devoted himself to their own spiritual growth. And he has seen spiritual growth, but 30 years later, it began to wane. And so John must write, you have lost your first love. They lost the sense of God's power and might in their lives. And they settled into a routine that is satisfying, but not fulfilling. A routine in which they could find solace and comfort, but not in one that would turn the world upside down, as it was said of the Thessalonians. The Ephesians were comfortable, and they had the blessings of God, but they were ineffectual, and they had no impact on the community around them 30 years later. Paul is telling them as he prays for them. He wants them to know God experientially, not just to know about God. And the only way you can know God experientially is in the the realities of life, in the conflicts and successes in life, and acknowledging, reflecting on, and seeing the hand of God in your life. Paul says that he wants us to be to the praise of his glory. And so the goal is that moment by moment we see the hand of God on our lives. Someone had said to me in a word of encouragement, he said, Gary, you are where God wants you. I said, how do you know that? He says, because you're here. You're here. It's a good word. You are where God wants you. We may not be doing all that God wants us to do, but he's ready, willing, and able to empower us to do all that he would have us to do. Greater things than we can ask or think, Yeshua says to us. And to reinforce this, and this is my last point, look at verse 19. This one phrase at the end of verse 19 is rather interesting to me. He says, he is praying that we might know his incomparable great power. He says, that power is like the working of his mighty strength. See those four words? Power, working, mighty, strength. Those are four words Paul has deliberately chosen to sort of bring to a climax this sense of God's great power. So he doesn't just say, this is his power, but he says, this is his power. The word is dudamis, his great ability 
to do great things. It's where we get the word dynamite from. He says this dunamis is like the working. The word working comes from a Greek word energeo, which we get the word energizing from. This great power, this explosive ability for God to do unbelievable things is the energy of God. He says it is And he goes on to say, working of his mighty strength. He uses another word for mighty that denotes power. And the word for strength is another word. So Paul is like heaping up all of these adjectives to say his power is like the greatest power of all power you could ever experience and see energized in our world. That's the power that God has given to us by means of his spirit. And so that's why we have no need to fear what is before us. Because God's power and strength is to bring us from moment to moment, step by step, day by day. That is why our lives can be changed and transformed dramatically by the power of God. Now in closing, I want to tell you just a brief story about how one man's transformed life, I've shared it with some, has so impacted me with regard to what God can really do in a person's life. We've all experienced to some degree because we were all changed and we know the Lord and we've seen him work in our lives. But one of the greatest manifestations of God's power I've ever experienced was a moment when a man came into my office He had been attending the church back east that I pastored at for a few months. And he had told me that his wife had run off with his best friend. These two couples had done Bible studies together. They worshiped in a church together. They had come to faith together. They loved the Lord together. And for years they served together. And his wife left with his best friend and moved in with her and said that she no longer wanted anything to do with him. He made his way into our service just to worship with us. And over time, after some trust was built up, he sat down and said, Gary, can I share this with you? And we would meet on a periodic, weekly, every other week basis just to pray, just for me to listen to his heartache and his heart breaking. He lost, they lost everything in this time. They lost their home. They had two older sons that went wayward over all of this conflict that had now seeped into their lives. And as time moved on, he had said, well, it's almost a year, and in about a year's time, I'm going to be separated from my wife. I'm not sure what I'm going to be separated, and I can divorce my wife. I'm not sure if I should or not. Somehow a book made it into my office. I can't remember how and I can't find it. And it was called Irreconcilable Differences or Reconcilable Differences. And it was a book that spoke about the restoration of marriages. And as I shared with him, I said, you know, according to God's word, you would have every right to divorce your wife. She committed adultery. She left you. But you know, this this book that I've been reading and I gave it to him, also talks about another way, maybe a more glorious way, in which you could actually forgive your wife. 
and maybe even find restoration despite all that she had done against you. He said, I don't know about that one, you know. But we prayed. A year came up. And I said, so what are you going to do? He said, you know what? I'm not going to act on this now. I'm not going to pursue the divorce. His wife calls him. And his wife says, I've been such a fool. How could I have done such a thing? I want to be restored to you. And he took her back. They were remarried. They bought a new town home, maybe not as big as what they had. Their marriage went on and continues to this day. I encourage them to go back to their church to be a testimony of the incomparably great power of God in their lives. I know when we think of the power of God, we want mountains to move and we want waters to part. But sometimes the greatest mountains and obstacles in our lives have nothing to do with those kinds of things. They have to do with relationships. They have to do with what's inside of us. God's great power can do great, great things. And we have not yet begun to see such great things. But Paul's prayer is that we would know him. For if we really knew him, many of the things going on in our lives right now is the result of the great power of God displayed. But we're blind to it. If we knew him, we would trust him more. And we would be assured that God really is on our side and only means the best and the ultimate end of all things will be his own glory as well as hard to believe, our own. We're being transformed from glory to glory, Paul says. Paul says one day we will have an eternal weight of glory, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. The point is, we must know him. But you can't know him by simply reading a book about him. You must live with him. Make the hard choices that are the choices in which God must work. For if he doesn't, we will not be able to endure or survive. That's what God ultimately wants for all of us that we might know him, that we might know of his calling, that we would know of the riches of his inheritance in the saints, that we might know of his incomparably great power toward us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, may this be the heart throb of our own hearts. May we be recipients of the answers to Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. May we know you, O living God, as Paul desired the Ephesians to know you. And thus, Father, in the experiences of our life, 
May we look, may we look for your wonder-working power that transforms, that saves, that redeems, and that restores. May Beth Ariel experience your power that we would do the work that only you can do in and through us. A work that means a transformation of our own hearts and a work that will result in the transformation of others as well. Father, may that be true for each and every one of us, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.